0: Well, good morning and welcome to Christ Church on a glorious weekend, great weather, interesting football, lots of reasons to um, sort of be enjoying the moment. Uh, I went Monday night, I went up to a, a home, in a lake home in Wisconsin and spent a few days writing and thinking and working on some things. Uh, it wasn't exactly a, a, a spiritual retreat per se, but I was sort of unplugged and it was quiet. So I was coming back, uh, driving down from Wisconsin, coming back uh, into Illinois. Turned on the news, and uh, and it sort of started to, you know, wash over me. I mean, it's local, state, national, global, and and the the nature of the news is is always sort of bad. I mean, it's a little bit of that, that's the nature of journalism and to report things that aren't working and sort of human nature, but it was like, okay, uh, debt and war and poverty and famine and uh, all the, the kinds of things that were going on. It was, uh, it was a little bit uh, foreboding. And of course, then there's the personal stuff that we uh, are engaged with, right? I mean, I know that, that uh, some of you are struggling. It's, it's um, just difficult Unemployment, or cancer, or you're sideways with your children, or your neighbors, or your marriage is on fumes, or you're not married and you wish you were, or whatever. There's just a whole lot of reasons why uh, people can be down, and the the passage today actually speaks to that for us. It is uh, it is the longest answer we get from Jesus as to why things are going wrong and when they'll get better. I mean, at some point you say. All right, enough. We're looking for this world you've talked about of hope and peace and joy and justice and where your will is done and where things work. We're, we're, we're waiting for that. How long do we wait? And, uh, and that's the question that comes up uh, in what we refer to as the Olivet Discourse. So it's Wednesday night. It's, it's towards the very end of Christ's life. Thursday night is the Last Supper. Of course, the betrayal by Judas. They go to the garden. He's praying. He doesn't want to go forward with this. Then comes the arrest, the charade of a trial. Friday morning, he's going to be put to death. So we're in the final hours here of Christ's life. And uh, tensions are high. Uh, When he paraded into Jerusalem on the Sunday that we celebrate, as Palm Sunday, he parades into Jerusalem for the Passover he does it in a way that sort of tweaks the noses of the Romans, right? He's got a crowd, and they're chanting, and they're, they're waving palm branches, which is sort of the flag of, of Jewish independence. And, and he, puts, he puts the Roman authorities on notice. I can turn this mob on you in a moment. So the Romans are agitated. And then he goes into the temple, a little bit surprising, that he doesn't follow through with the crowds, but he goes into the temple and he begins to teach uh, and speak outside of the temple. He's in the courtyards, but he's forgiving sins and he's healing people, and he's basically just challenging the Jewish leaders. Right? You're not supposed to forgive sins outside of the temple. And there he is saying, you don't have to go into that building. I'm the one you're looking for. And so the Jewish religious leaders are agitated. And meanwhile, the disciples are still a little bit clueless as to how things are going to unfold. And one of them makes a comment about the temple, saying how nice it is. And that sets Jesus off. And he says, in essence, "Eh, not really. This is a bunch of rocks. Uh, They're coming down. And they're like, they're coming down? When? When is this going to happen? Uh, and and, and what, will the, what will be our warnings that it's going to happen? And what are we supposed to do? And is that when the world's going to end? And so it's, it's this relatively casual comment that a disciple makes about, uh, about the temple that sets in motion what is in essence the last big policy address that Jesus gives. And uh, it's called the Olivet Discourse because... They apparently are walking from the temple over uh, to, up to the Mount of Olives where Jesus is staying, where they're staying each night. And uh, it's a steep walk. I've done it. You know, my, my takeaway at that moment was, wow, Jesus was in good shape because this is, this is hard climbing here. So the it's called the Olivet Discourse. And, um, again, it, it happens against the backdrop of the temple. So let me just remind you, the temple is ground zero for the Jews. This is, uh, this is the place they believe that, uh, that, that God manifests his presence in a particularly unique, powerful, important way. So when, when the Jews come out of Egypt, uh, God is guiding and directing them. And eventually, through, through some sort of trial and error of the people, they settle on this tent where God is going to reside and and that's where the the altar is going to be where sacrifices are going to be made and it's it's where the holy of holies is and the, and it's inside that that the that the jewish holy architecture and relics right so Aaron's staff and the 10 commandments and the ark of the covenant are all in this and so this tabernacle will go on for uh hundreds of years and then David will build Uh, his palace. He unites the Jews. He builds a palace. And at some point, you can tell David's feeling a little bit um, bad. He goes, God, I I reside in this wonderful palace. You've got a tent. I want to build you uh, a a better place. I want to build you this temple. And God says, no, uh, you've been a man of war. It's not going to happen that way. But uh, you can collect the, the, the goods, the gold, start to train the artists, get the, get the special lumber from Lebanon, get all that stuff in place, and your son will build the temple. So Solomon does that, and he builds this incredible building. And it's glorious and it's got all kinds of gold in it and people come from all over to see it. And the temple is where again the altar is and the sacrifices are made with the priests. And that temple will exist for a couple hundred years. And then uh, the Jews will fall to the Babylonians and the temple is destroyed and, uh, and it's, it's gutted, and all the good stuff is taken and stolen and lost, and, and the Jews are in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. Then they come back. This is now towards the end of the Old Testament, and uh, they will uh, eventually, we're reading the books of here, Esther and Nehemiah and Habakkuk, eventually they get around to building, rebuilding the temple. Okay, but it's, it's not much to look at. It's sort of, you know, the kids get the cushions off the couch and build a little fort in the corner. And it's, it's like Solomon's temple was glorious, this new temple not very glorious. But that will be in place for a few hundred years until Herod the Great comes along. And Herod the Great is a diabolical guy. He's called the Great because he's a great builder. He's a great architect. He is named king of the Jews by Caesar Augustus, but he's not a Jew. And so he's not really accepted by the Jews. And one of the things he does to sort of court favor with them is he embarks on a massive building program to build them a temple, to rebuild the temple. He starts in 20 B.C., and he will not finish, he, he will be gone at this point, but they will not finish until 63 A.D. So for 83 years, they're working on this temple. At some point, they have 10,000 people working on it at a time. So there's a we've got a, a, a slide of the temple. So the courtyard you see to the right, the court, that courtyard, just for scale, could hold 400,000 people. And it was just a massive building. Okay, So when Jesus is alive, they've been working on it for 50 or 60 years. It's not done. But every year when they would come back for the Passover, they would look to see what was new. Right? And for the last year, people have been working on this. So um, it's, it's in that context that, that a disciple makes a comment about the temple. But remember... Jesus doesn't like the temple. Jesus is the new temple. The temple was supposedly where God manifested his presence in a unique way. Well, guess what? Jesus is now where God manifests his presence in a unique way. The temple is where you go to get forgiveness of sins. No, Jesus is now the the way that you get forgiveness of sins. So Jesus is the new temple. He's not a fan of the temple. There's just been this observation of the widow putting the mites uh, putting her small amount of money into the temple treasury to keep the building program going. And Jesus has, has commended her for her sacrifice, but he's noted that, uh, that, the, that the leaders, the Jewish leaders, are not putting in as much as she's putting in. Right? He's not a fan of the temple. And so that's the backdrop out of which these comments come. Now, I just want to say this is a dark passage, and it's a difficult passage to understand. It's difficult for a variety of reasons. It's difficult in part because it's prophecy, and we don't really do prophecy very well. We understand lots of types of of literary genre. When you read the paper, you know to read the front page differently than you read the ads, differently than you read the comics, differently than you read the editorial section, We intuitively understand there's different kinds of literature and you interpret them differently. We don't really have a lot of experience with prophecy, not the kind of prophecy that we see in the Bible. A whole lot of the Bible is prophetic. But that's about the only place where we're reading this kind of literature. And so we're not really very good with it. Additionally, uh, there are some prophetic literary uh, devices that we have very little experience with, and one of them shows up here. It's called prophetic foreshortening, and it's when somebody talks about something that's right in front of you, either physically or sort of time-wise, but you're talking about that and you're talking about something that's way far off at the same time, and you mix them together. And it was relatively common. It shows up in a variety of places in the Bible, but... We don't really get that. So Jesus is going to be talking about the destruction of the temple, which is going to take place in seventy A.D. But but there's there's also mixed in sort of the end of the world language, and in part because the disciples, it's it's not really clear what questions they're asking. There's three places the Olivet discourse is is, uh, is d- discussed. Mark 13, Matthew 23 and 24, and Luke 21. The Matthew passage is a little bit longer. Uh, When you put all of them together, you can tell that the disciples are sort of conflating the destruction of the temple with the end of the world because in their world, the end of the temple is the end of the world. They, They can't really imagine life going on. It's not always clear what questions they're asking. It's not entirely clear what questions Jesus is answering. Additionally, this is not the only place in the Bible where we read about the end, where we read about how the world ends, where we read about how Jesus returns, where we read about uh, all those things that are covered in this theological topic that is referred to as eschatology. Greek word eschaton means last things. What are the last things? So you've got the book of Daniel, and you've got some Ezekiel, and you've got Revelation. All of these things are commenting on it. They're all enormously complicated passages. When you study them, you quickly have to make some uh, decisions about some big things that are going to send you down different interpretive pathways. For instance, are the promises that are made by God to the Jews only going to be fulfilled uh, to the Jews? And if to the Jews, does that mean the modern nation of Israel? And is it possible that the Christians become the uh, God's people at some point? And we talk about these promises being fulfilled to Christ's followers. There's a lot of debate about that. You've got the passage in Revelation, 21, uh, or Revelation 20 that talks about the thousand-year reign of Christ. And... Uh historically, we see that for a long time, people said, as the church grows and spreads and as people yield their life to, to Christ and become more like Christ, good will break out. Peace will come. And there will be a thousand-year reign of peace. And at the end of that thousand years, Jesus will return. That's called post-millennialism. There's a second view that says, no, Jesus will return before the thousand-year reign. And then there's debate in terms of how much of the great tribulation Christians go through or are they removed? Are they raptured? And, and so you've got, you've got debate about when it starts, but there's an understanding that there's a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. That's called premillennialism. Then there's another group called amillennialism that says the language about the thousand years is symbolic. And it's symbolic of Christ's reign in heaven now. Okay, So these are just a few of the of the options that you have. But people bring different interpretive uh, pathways or, or, or principles to understanding how things are going to end. And part of the reason it's confusing is because it's clear that we're not being told exactly how it's going to unfold. Right? We're not being given the kind of specificity that many people would like. So this is a difficult passage, but I want you to be encouraged when you leave today because there's good news in it, and that's where we're going to go. But I am going to walk you through most of, of Luke chapter 21. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We begin with verse 5. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the, temple was adorn, um, how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. Again, they'd been away for a year. Now they're looking at it. Wow, good work. They got a lot done. This is really nice. But Jesus says, uh, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. <laughs> You're like, What? I mean, everything about the temple says stability, durability, you know, lasting power. They've been working on this building for 50, 60 years. They're not done. It will only last, by the way, three years after they complete it before it's, it's torn down. But the, the, the disciples are like, what are you talking about? This temple is going to come down. Teacher, they said, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're about to, to, to take place? So then we get the longest answer from Jesus we get to any question ever asked. Um, He replied, watch out that you're not deceived, for many will come in my name claiming I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. So note to self, you will hear lots of people say, this is it. This is the end. it's, It's over. The world is going to end. And don't believe that that's necessarily the case. Lots of predictions will be made, have been made, and will continue to be made. Verse 10. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilence in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. So again, expect storms and chaos and and disruption and just because that's happening doesn't mean the end is near those are signs but they don't mean that the end is imminent verse 12 but before all this they will seize you and persecute you they will hand you over to the synagogues and put you in prison and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name and so you will bear testimony to me but make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that, uh, that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed. And this, is, this is where I said This gets bad and dark. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends. They will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. So a lot of people want to want to just focus in on verse 18. Uh, not a hair of your head will perish. Forgetting verse 17 that says some of you will lose your life. So the verse 18 is obviously in a context of, of God has all of this under control. We live after we die. right? You've got to have an eternal perspective. This is going to work out. Um, so he is calling us um, uh, to not... Fear, even when things look very dark and ominous. Verse 20. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let those who are in the city get out, and let those in the country not enter the city. Okay, so uh, two things to understand here. First of all, this is very countercultural advice That Jesus is giving. Because in the first century, if you lived outside the city walls, as soon as there was trouble, what you wanted to do is flee to the city. You wanted to get inside the city. You wanted to get behind the walls where you would be safe. So this is countercultural advice. Secondly, you need to understand that we've got some of the prophetic foreshortening going on here. Because this is a description of what happens in 70 A.D. Even as it sort of talks about the future, it's talking about what happened in 70 AD. The entire Roman Empire uh, is huge. It's massive. It goes in every direction. Not really ever been anything like it since. But top on the list of the Romans' ongoing problems are the Jews. They keep revolting, right? So all these conquered countries and areas, and they're living and paying huge amounts of taxes back to Rome. And uh, there would be insurrections from time to time, lots of insurrections by the Jews. They kept uh, rebelling, and they will rebel in the late sixties. Right, so they will they will overthrow the Romans. Remember, Pilate is is there? Pilate's the Roman governor. He's there. He's got military forces, but obviously he doesn't have as many military as there are people. So eventually, the Jews will will organize behind somebody they will defeat the romans so what happens is somebody goes back to rome and says there's problems in rome and here comes the big army right so the big army comes and it surrounds jerusalem and they just they they establish a siege they basically surround the city and they've got enough soldiers to do that and they say okay now we sit back and wait because you've got a certain amount of food, you've got a certain amount of water, eventually uh, you're gonna run out. <laughs> and, and you will die or you will open the gates and we will kill you. We will destroy you. So we read about what happens in Josephus, a Jewish historian, and Tacitus, a Roman historian, and it's horrific. It's, there's a million, Josephus says there's a million uh, people, uh, I think Tacitus says there's 500,000. But there's hundreds of thousands of people, and they starve. And they're they're eating the dust. They resort resort to cannibalism. It's horrific what goes on. Eventually, they throw open the gates, and in come the Romans, and many of them are killed. Rome is so mad at this point, uh, because the Jews continue to revolt, that they destroy Jerusalem. So they burn as much as they can. They burn as much of the temple as they can. Remember, there's all kinds of gold in the temple. So quite literally, when Jesus says every stone is going to be unturned, virtually every stone of the temple will be unturned because the gold melted and it went it went in different places. So people are are pulling apart the rocks to see if any of the gold went in between the cracks. So all that will be left of this temple that was worked on for 83 years is the 187 feet of, of sort of foundational stones that make up the west wall today. The wailing wall that you see people going to uh, and praying to. But there's, they, they, they've not rebuilt the temple, although some would like to rebuild the temple. They've not rebuilt the temple because on that spot, the temple mount is where the Muslims have built the Dome of the Rock. Ra- which is it's the third holiest Muslim site. And so it is, a, it is a Muslim holy ground now, and it's also the sort of holy ground of, of the Jews, those who want to rebuild the temple. It's been destroyed. That destruction happens in 70 A.D. They, not just, they don't just destroy the temple. They destroy Jerusalem. They, they plow it under, and they say to the people, You're gone. Go. We'll let you live, but you cannot stay here. Israel no longer exists. We're renaming this area Palestine, and it's gone. Israel is over. And so between 70 A.D. and 1948, when the U.N. votes to reconstitute the nation of Israel, there is no Israel. There is no uh, Jewish state. So this description here is in part... prophecy Jesus is giving about what is going to happen to the temple. (laughs) And and yet there's also some symbolic language going on here as well. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by the armies, you will know its desolation is near. Then let those of you who are in the Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city. Obviously, you don't want to be there if everybody's going to starve to death. You want to be outside of the city. For this is the time of punishment... In fulfillment of all that has been written, so the punishment is not the punishment of the Romans. The punishment that is that is in fulfillment of all that's been written is punishment by the prophets. Is by punishment by God, which the prophets kept writing about, saying, "If you do not follow God, if you don't humble yourself and follow God, this is going to end poorly for you." So. Um, That's the prophecy there. Verse 23, how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Uh, Then verse 25, we get signs about all kinds of bad uh, things happening. Uh, Verse 29, we get a parable Uh, about uh, more bad things happening. Verse 34, we're told not to lose heart when all this is happening. We've got to keep an eternal perspective. Then verse 35, uh, for it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. As I said, a dark, foreboding passage The disciple who said, hey, I like the building, is probably thinking, oh, my goodness, I had no idea what I was going to set in motion. Verse 37, each day Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people would come early in the morning to hear him at the temple. So uh, Jesus is teaching, last policy address it's a comment about the temple. He doesn't like the temple. He he talks about the fact that it's going to come down. When they ask when and they ask, you know, what will the signs of this be, we get this prophetic passage about the end of the world in which Jesus will say many people are going to predict it before it happens. He'll also say many people will say that they're me, that they're the Messiah, but they're not, and and we get a, a description uh, of of a of a time when bad things are going to happen. And we are told in this passage that many of us will suffer. Uh, We are told, uh, if we read between the lines, that Jesus knows the future. If we read the Matthew account, we are told that the end will not come until the gospel has been preached around the world. Um, We are told that uh, not all religions are the same or are right. There's a whole lot in this text. That we can uh, latch on to. We're coming back to it next week. I want to leave you today with two ideas. Two big thoughts. First, I want you to understand that uh, we know everything we need to know. So, this is a complicated passage. There's a lot of debate in terms of the specifics of how we're going to understand it. As a general rule, the prophecies we see in the Old Testament that are fulfilled are fulfilled in a way that we didn't expect. It makes perfect sense in retrospect, but it's really hard to look at the prophecy and say, this is the way it's going to be fulfilled. So it's just the nature of of the way God's prophecy works. So there's a lot of disagreement over some things. I want you to have confidence that you know what you need to know. So one of the things that, is, that gets elevated at the time of the Reformation, which we're going to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation when Luther nailed his 95 feces on the door, uh, the castle in Wittenberg, Germany, and sort of called for the church to, to sort of humble itself and, and head down a different direction. There's a number of things that correspond with that. One of the things that came out of the Reformation was Luther's call to get the Bible back in the hands of the people. And, and the specific underlying principle was called the perspicuity of Scripture. Which basically said, anybody can read the book and the main points will be clear. Okay? So you don't, it, it's not just the priests that should read the Bible. Anybody can read the Bible and the main points are clear. There is a creator God who is holy and powerful. We are sideways with him. He's loving and gracious and he sent his son we can be reconciled through the, Jesus, who was the Son of God and God himself and fully man and dies in our place. The big points are there for anybody to read. And, and they, they are clear. There are other things that are not so clear. Right? All Scripture is true, all scripture is, but not all Scripture is as important as all other parts of Scripture. So the perspicuity of Scripture says "There's the things we need to know, we know. So what do we need to know about uh, the return of Christ? That he's going to return, right? He came as a child, he's going to come again. It's it's talked about throughout the book. The one who came in weakness is going to return in power. He will return to establish his kingdom. We also know that we don't know when this is going to happen. Now many people will claim To know when it's going to happen. When they make those claims, my advice to you is to just back slowly out of the room. Because they don't know. In the Matthew account of all the discourse, Jesus says, nobody knows the hour of the day. Not even me. So I'm just thinking that if Jesus doesn't know, they don't know. Now I get that we want to figure this out. We're looking forward to this day. Like, when will it come? We get some clues. (laughs) So you want to try and put the clues together. I get that. It all makes sense. But we have to handle this with great humility. And some people become very confident that they've figured it out. Nobody's figured it out for 2,000 years. They suddenly have figured it out. I would encourage you to say, now, I know Christ is going to return. But I'm quite confident that all you can do is speculating guess. And I'm not going to hitch my wagon to your train. And number three, uh, we, we know that we know everything we need to live faithful lives now. Right? It's not like we're blind or clueless. We don't need to know the date. I, I think one of the reasons Christ doesn't give us the date is because we would just put it off. Right? When do you do your taxes? When do you write your papers for class? Right When do all these things happen, you put it off to the last minute. And you go, oh, it's not happening in my lifetime. I don't have to worry about that. No, that's not, that's not what we're called to. Christ could return at any time. So we need to live faithful lives now. And, and we can have confidence that the things we need to know about, uh, about how to live are found in this book, and they're clear. The second thing I want you to hold on as we go forward is just the promise that Jesus wins, right? Jesus wins, good prevails, God triumphs. We're not blind as to how this is gonna unravel. We have been told that Jesus who came as a child will return. And so we need to live with that confidence, right? Things work out for those who are in Christ. It's rough sledding between now and then, but things work. End well if you are in Christ. And the return of Christ will be a glorious event. I I went back and and re-watched part of the second Lord of the Rings uh, movies. So, uh, you know, Lewis, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien are friends. And Lewis writes uh, the Chronicles of Narnia to try and talk about the kingdom of God unfolding. And he has a Christ figure, Aslan the Lion, Tolkien thinks Lewis is crazy that you can't have a Christ figure because it's easy to have interesting evil characters. It's not very easy to have interesting good characters. They sort of get saccharine and sweet and not like Jesus. And so, so Tolkien thinks that you can't do what Lewis does. I think he does it pretty well. But in the Lord of the Rings, he divides the offices of Christ, prophet, priest, and king between Frodo who is the priest. He's going he's to end up dying because he's trying to do the right thing and, and rescue others. Uh, uh, Aragorn, who is the king, and Gandalf, who is the prophet. So in the second Lord of the Rings movie, Gandalf dies. Gandalf the gray dies. It's a bad moment, everybody said. Later on, here comes Gandalf the white. He has returned. And it happens, there's this battle going on, and it looks like the Fellowship of the Ring, these people that are trying to get the ring to Mordor to destroy it, right, to, to defeat evil, it looks like it's over for them. They're surrounded by an army, the army's pressing in, they're going to die. And all of a sudden, up on the hill, there comes the white horse with Gandalf the White on it. And everybody goes, Gandalf? And then here comes behind him this massive army. And and the army, you know, goes in and rescues everybody. It's this great sort of prophetic metaphor of the return of Christ. We know Jesus will return. He wins. And so we can can have confidence that he wins. And that should change the way we live today. I used this before, but since you only get to use this illustration apparently once every hundred years... um, I'll use it again now. The Cubs win, right? (laughs) And you can go back and watch game seven and and watch the eighth inning when everything is unraveling and you're going, oh no, it's it's coming apart, it's coming apart. You can watch that now with confidence because you know how it turns out. The Cubs win. Jesus wins. Jesus returns. That promise should shape how we live today. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the promises that you have made to us which we can bank on. Help us to bank on them. There are are lots of reasons that we can get discouraged and have frustrations and doubt and fear and be confused as to what's going on. And there's all kinds of claims and counterclaims about what's going on. Help us see through all of that uh, and, and to live with the confidence of your promised return. Help us to lean into the values uh, that, that will one day prevail, values of grace and love and mercy and kindness and justice and joy. We long for that day. We want to be part of that world. We want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we, we look forward to that day and pray for strength and confidence Uh, to live today in light of your promised return in Christ's name.